I'm talking about a social movement, a, a decentralized social movement, a horizontal social movement that is global, that goes into multiple countries, that carries out a unified agenda by targeting elections, winning elections in all of these different countries, and figuring out how to use the processes of consensus-based decision-making to give voice to the people. That's Mika White, author, social activist, and one of the co-instigators of the Occupy Wall Street movement. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, chair of the Monk Debates, and welcome to the Next Debate Podcast. The trouble is that most of the debate on these issues... We are debating an obligation we are already committed to. It comes after you and can haunt you. Any issue has caused me greater agony and anger. We are standing at the threshold of a great evolution. Very serious issues. Let's get to the point. Are we living in a post-revolutionary age? From the Arab Spring uprisings in the Middle East to the Occupy Wall Street movement in the West, mass social movements have failed spectacularly in recent years to achieve meaningful and lasting social change. Author and activist Mika White thinks mass movements today are fundamentally misunderstanding the task before them. Success isn't getting tens of thousands of people out into the public square in nonviolent protest. Instead, it's creating a mass global movement that seizes the machinery of government peacefully through the ballot box. Only then is real social change a possibility in our time. The future of protest and revolution, next with Mika White on the Next Debate podcast. Welcome to the Next Debate podcast. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to be here. Let's uh, dive right in here and have you unpack um, an, an interesting title for this book, uh, The End of Protest and a New Playbook for Revolution. Those two ideas seem in conflict and contradiction with each other. What are you getting at? My book basically comes out of this realization that you know, we've been having the largest and most frequent protests in human history, and yet these protests don't seem to be <clears throat> creating the social change that we, what, that we desire. So on the one hand, we're living through the end of protest, which is a time when uh, protest is no longer effective. But on the other hand, I see that there's, you know, optimism about the possibility of revolution. So the book is really kind of dealing with both of those things. Is how do we break out of this period of stagnation around protest? How do we make it effective again? And what kind of revolution is possible and what would it look like? And how do we imagine that? Let's go to the stagnation uh quandary first, because you're right. There's all kinds of reasons why we would expect people on the street, record levels of economic uh, inequality uh, across Europe, the United States, increasing dissatisfaction with uh, political elites. So again, why the, why the lack of the type of, of social ferment that we've saw throughout the 20th century? Well, I think on the one hand, I mean, there's, there's, there's basically two factors that play against each other. On the one hand, there's the common response, which is that you know, we live in a time of unprecedented uh, police control where we have surveillance of the Internet. We have, um, you know, armored, armored police using military-grade technology to disperse crowds and this kind of stuff. And that, that, that renders a lot of contemporary uh, urban protest tactics obsolete. Okay, so on the one hand, I think that's, that's probably true. But on the other hand, I think there's a more significant and deeper insight, which is that the paradigm of protest, the theory of protest that underlies contemporary activism is actually broken. And the, uh, the, the main idea underlying contemporary protest is that if we can get millions and millions of people into the street and they say a unified message and they're largely nonviolent, 
then our elected representatives will have to listen and real change will happen. But we've seen repeatedly that when, that when activists actually achieve that goal, which is very hard to achieve, but it's happened, like during Occupy Wall Street, the anti-war marches in 2003, the climate marches, when that happens, it actually doesn't yield the social change that activists have been, have been chasing. So activists are, have been following kind of illusion about what creates change, and that's, I think, the deeper uh, insight about why these protests aren't working. Let's go deeper on that. You're, you're saying, in a sense, that activists are feeling empowered by getting out on the streets, making their voices heard, but the actual mechanisms for change are within governments, within power structures that seem kind of immune to the influence of the street? Right. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, it, there's, a, there's, these, there's a paradigm of activism, and one paradigm is that our human actions create change, and that if we can get lots of people into the streets to force their representatives to do things, then they will. But on the one hand, that we've, we've learned that that's not true because elected representatives are not required to listen to uh, protests. In fact, protests have become just part of the spectacle so that, you know, protests don't indicate that they need to um, do change any behavior. It's just something that is part and parcel of doing politics. But I think that there's a, a deeper, more philosophical thing going on here, which is that it might be another theory that I get of social change that I get into with my book, for example, is called structuralism, the idea that social change only happens during um, historic uh, moments of economic crisis that aren't impacted by human human agency, that don't that don't involve human action, and then there's other options. Another option would be that that social change actually happens when we change our how we view the world, and that this is th- that this process of kind of inner transformation is what actually changes the world and stuff like that. So I think that on the one hand we have elected representatives who aren't beholden to these street protests, but on the other hand we have to realize that street protests are just acting out one theory of what creates change and that there's other theories of change that I try to get into in my book. Do you think part of the challenge of protest in our day and age is that we're just, we're, we're too successful, we're, we're too satiated, um, too much cable television, too many smartphones, we're in a post-revolutionary age? <laughs> um, well, I think the so to take the first part of your question, you're right that there's one theory which, you know, is kind of called like the J-curve, which is that if you have a period of, of growth, economic prosperity that suddenly reverses, then the people are more likely to kind of um, have a revolutionary moment. And that's kind of like, you know, echoed by Marxian, you know, historical materialism and this kind of stuff. So on the one hand, there's that theory. But, you know, I think that, on, and I think that's partly true, but not 100% true. But on the second part about have we, have we moved into a post-revolutionary age, I think that is not, that's not true. I think that there is an interesting um, phenomenon that seems to be that democracy is more resistant to old-style revolutionary change. Like, you know, democracy seems to be more resistant to the kind of revolutions that swept Russia and China and stuff like that. But on the other hand, I think that revolution is, seems to be even more likely today because of, because of various factors, like the speed of the Internet and the ability to move tactics. And that, and that what seems to happen in human history, actually, is that revolutions happen at the precise moment when they seem least likely. And that's something that, like, if you read Trotsky's history of the Russian Revolution, he kind of observed, and that's observed, like, throughout history, that, Russia, that revolutions actually seem to happen precisely when we think they're not possible. So whenever, so as soon as I hear people say we live in a post-revolutionary age, I'm like, wow, I'm, like, even more convinced that we're closer than ever. 
Good point. Let, let's talk about, again, you say revolution comes about through changes of how people see themselves, their own agency, a, a kind of reimagining of the world. Uh, you must be familiar with the, the work of labor historian Steve Fraser, who in his recent book, The Age of Acquiescence, makes this interesting point that that the great kind of revolutions around the Gilded Age, the revolutions in labor, for instance, were the result of people having a memory, a lived experience of a of a, a world before the kind of capitalism that they were facing off against, a more pastoral, uh, rural, agrarian world. Whereas now, according to Steve Fraser, we're so deep into uh, the capitalist matrix, as he would uh, characterize it, that again, it's just very hard for protest to take momentum to have real impact beyond uh, the, the the Occupy Wall Street type model. Mm. Well, I think you know what one thing that seems to be um, a key to triggering these kind of uh, revolutionary moments now, and it really gets to this question about changing people's minds, is that you basically it's like a collective awakening. And so I think on the one hand, you know, he's probably diagnosing the situation correctly, which is that a lot of people nowadays, they, they not only think that revolution isn't possible, they also think it might not be desirable. And that, and that, and that what, what happens though, is that in moments like Occupy Wall Street, all of a sudden they wake up. It's like coming out of a dream. And all of a sudden they, they, they see like, wow, it's possible. It's within reach. It's desirable. I want this. And they lose their fear and they start jeopardizing the status quo and they start, you know, quitting their jobs like we did during Occupy Wall Street. And so I think that the challenge for activists is how to trigger these collective epiphanies. And I think that these collective epiphanies are always possible, but it has to do with how do you trigger them. And then nowadays, I think a lot of activism is so based around rationalism and facts and, 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 and all this kind of stuff that it, that, it, that it misses out on the deeper problem of, you know, to really, to really spark these awakenings, these emotional uh, awakening is a, is a question of kind of um, appealing to people's spirits and people's hopes and imaginations and dreams and, and this kind of thing. Tell us about the, the, the time that, that you really felt this with a big crowd, 30,000 people. I believe you were, uh, it was part of one of the early Occupy Wall Street protests. You looked around, it was your friends, your neighbors, others, and, and you felt that there was this kind of electrical revolutionary charge in the air. Right, yeah. I think that one of the most beautiful uh, moments of Occupy Wall Street that I experienced, you know, was in Oakland on the, when we shut down the port. And it was after the, you know, a, a protester at Occupy had been seriously injured by um, police. And basically the whole, you know, the whole Bay Area just marched down to the port and we shut it down. And I remember on that day, you know, people were sitting in small groups, they were sharing food, everyone was smiling, everyone's eyes were bright, everyone was basically, you know, we just, we, we, I remember telling my friends, you know, everyone's so beautiful, you know, <laughs> everyone looks so beautiful, they were so alive. And I think that that is the key to what constitutes a revolutionary moment today is that, you know, it's, it's this process of waking people up and having that, that sudden epiphany spread throughout society. You're listening to The Next Debate. I'm Rudyard Griffiths. My guest is author and activist Mika White. Coming up, Mika White explains the grand strategy social movements need to embrace if they're going to put their principles into action. Debate. 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 And this debate. debate. If you're enjoying this podcast, visit us online at www.monkdebates.com for outstanding public policy debates on the big issues of the day. Here, Glenn Greenwald take on ex-CIA chief Michael Hayden on state surveillance. 
see Tony Blair debate the late and great Christopher Hitchens on whether religion is a force for good in the world. Read Henry Kissinger's debate with Neil Ferguson on whether China will dominate the 21st century. These and other great debates, free for watching, listening, and reading, all at www.monkdebates.com. Okay, well, so to, to move on to the second part of the title of your book, A New Playbook for Revolution, uh, what, are you, what are you recommending to, to your fellow activists here? Um, what are the, the kind of tactics and strategies that you think is going to get us over this, this kind of malaise or this entropy around not mass movements, because these exist, but mass change? Well, I think, you know, on the one side, on the one hand, there's like kind of a tactical question that, and that relates to what we've been discussing about theories of change. But I think one of the aspects of my book that people will, I think, dig into and really enjoy is this idea of, well, what are some of the revolutionary scenarios that, that could happen? You know, and I think that I, I lay out three, three revolutionary scenarios for, I think, directions that activists could be pushing. One of them is, a, is the idea of a kind of rural revolt. You know, I live in rural Oregon. And one of the things I've realized is that you know, actually power is, uh, I would say, a little bit weaker out in the rural areas. The idea of, of small groups of people gaining control of city councils and mayorships and all this kind of stuff, it actually seems possible and easy. And so that one idea is some sort of rural revolt where people gain sovereignty in local communities. The second idea is this idea that we're going to have global social movements that can win elections in multiple countries. And we're already seeing that start to develop in Europe, the idea that we don't need to just win elections in Greece or in Spain. We need to win elections in Greece and Spain and Germany and Canada under one social movement. So the, so the idea there is that social movements need to start learning how to not just protest, but also do the behaviors typically associated with political parties, which would be winning, winning elections, putting forward candidates, and stuff like that. And then the third revolutionary scenario is this idea that we're going to develop um, autonomous kind of artificial intelligences that will, you know, I call them protest spots that will... Um, allow us to spread social movements using, you know, um, technologies and, and uh, artificial intelligences in new kinds of ways. Let's, uh, let's probe deeper on some of these. Uh, specifically, your idea of social movements uh, translating themselves, converting themselves into political movements and doing that on a global scale. Um, what do you think of what happened with Syriza? There was a very powerful progressive social movement that captured government in Greece and then signed a bailout deal that embraced, you know, German-style austerity. Right. And I think that that's exactly, that's a very good question. So, you know, if we backtrack and we look at what, what Occupy Wall Street was doing, Occupy Wall Street was ho holding these general assemblies in public squares and they were enacting a kind of consensus-based democracy because we believe that somehow sovereignty would translate into these assemblies, that if people, everyday people started discussing amongst themselves, having these democratic assemblies, that the police wouldn't be able to attack us because we would be the sovereign power. But we realize that's not true. Actually, sovereignty in our societies is only given to people who either win elections or win wars. You know, there's only two ways to really gain sovereignty. And winning wars doesn't seem like a possible thing. So winning elections actually seems like something that can happen and we've seen happen in Europe. But winning elections, as you pointed out, presents its own challenges. Because if you use the old party model of, of winning elections, then you're, then you're electing el the leaders. And these leaders, again, fall into the same ego traps that we, that we tried to escape with Oxford Wall Street. They, again, become representatives instead of delegates, and they can, they can sacrifice the ideals of, of the movement that got them into power. 
So that's why I call these, that's why I look at the future as a, a hybrid between the movement model and the party model. The movement model being that it's, that it's decentralized, horizontal, it's based on the people. And the party model being that there's, there are certain behaviors that, that, um, that parties do that, that social movements need to learn, such as canvassing and caucusing and, and, you know, gaining signatures and getting on ballots and getting people to vote. So it is, it's really this tension, though. I agree with you 100%. There's really a tension between, well, how are social movements going to um, gain control over the party, control over the leaders without letting them just do the old game, which we've seen so many times before, which is get into power and then all of a sudden sacrifice the ideals of the party. But I think that that's kind of you know, where we're going. That's the challenges that need to be addressed. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Black Lives Matters, because this is a new movement that we're seeing. Um, it... It has, certainly has currency. It certainly has profile. You, though, um, while you embrace its goals and its purpose, you're, you're a little bit critical. I mean, of course, it's important to say, you know, I'm black, so I totally support, obviously, Black Lives Matter as a concept. But I think that if we look at it critically, self-critically as activists, then I think it's very clear that Black Lives Matter didn't learn the fundamental lesson of Occupy Wall Street. The fundamental lesson of Occupy Wall Street was that protest alone you know, public spectacles alone, mass movements alone, won't force elected representatives to do anything. And I think so when we see, when we see Black Lives Matter repeat the same disruptive behavior that maybe innovate new disruptive behaviors like blocking traffic and stuff like that, you see that they haven't learned that fundamental lesson. And then I think on the other hand, the, you know, Black Lives Matter, the, it's, it's, a, it's a regression back to the kind of national social movement, American-based politics that I think Occupy Wall Street really escaped. Occupy Wall Street was beautiful because it was a global social movement that spread to 82 countries that linked up with the Arab Spring, with the, the you know, uh, movements that are happening in Spain. And, the, and, and that's what really, I think, made it po- powerful. And so, you know, I think we'll see, you know, we'll see activists. Basically, I think, I feel like activists are going to have to learn uh, the lessons of Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street in order to launch what will be uh, um, something great to come. You characterize Occupy Wall Street as a constructive failure. What, what, what were you getting at there? And um, what do you see as, you know, Occupy 2.0 that would understand what the failure was, how it was constructive, and improve upon it? Well, there's this, you know, there's a kind of, I think, attitude among activists that is, that is, that is really detrimental. And that is basically that, that there's no such thing as failure, that we haven't ever failed that everything is a success. And, they, you know, they like to say, oh, Occupy Wall Street, it, it, it splintered into a thousand shards of light. It wasn't defeated. It just merely, you know, transformed itself, all this kind of stuff. And that, that, that rhetoric is really positive and it, and it feels good, but it's not true. Occupy Wall Street was a constructive failure because we set out to achieve a very specific goal, um, which was to get money out of politics, and we failed. And we failed because, as I've been saying, we, we based our actions on a theory of change that wasn't true. It wasn't true. We didn't know it wasn't true. We had to test the hypothesis, and we tested it, and we found out not true. So we need to do, so we need to do a, new, a new method. Um, and I think that that's really important to say that Occupy was a constructive failure because it taught us something very important. It wasn't a total failure because it did achieve some, some goals. So when you look at, like, well, what, what could Occupy 2.0 look like, I think it gets back to this question of how are social movements going to actually gain and control power. And the only way I see for social movements to actually do that is to figure out how to win elections. 
And a lot of times when people hear me say this, they think I'm talking about Bernie Sanders. But I'm not talking about Bernie Sanders. I'm talking about a social movement, a, a decentralized social movement, a horizontal social movement that is global, that goes into multiple countries, that carries out a unified agenda by targeting elections, winning elections in all of these different countries, and figuring out how to use the processes of consensus-based decision-making or new forms of decision-making to, to give voice to the people. And that's the kind of, I think, direction that we're going to go. And it might seem difficult to imagine, but Oxford Wall Street was also very difficult to imagine. And we have new capacities. You know, the Internet allows us to do these kind of amazing things now socially that, that are going to be quite surprising. Just on that point of consensual decision-making, because you and others have rightly brought up that, you know, this was one of the weaknesses of Occupy Wall Street. It was a way that itself empowered people and made them really enthusiastic about the cause. But at the end of the day, that highly consensual model caused some real problems in terms of, again, operationalizing the movement. Well, you know, when we, if, we, if we get real, as it were, about what we're talking about, you know, we're talking about creating social movements that are trying to that are trying to institute dynamic social change, trans- transformative social change. And there are forces in this world that don't want that. They're called the status quo. And the status quo will use the, the, um, the norms of a movement against itself. And so what we saw with Occupy Wall Street is that, is that there are forces that use consensus-based decision-making against the movement in order to paralyze the assembly. And this is something that you see in every movement. I mean, I was just reading about how in the Russian Revolution, you know, uh, Lenin's secretary was a police agent and stuff like that. So, like, so there's always going to be these forces that will be in there infiltrating, messing with, and stuff like this. Um, and, and so, that, you know, it, it's really, on the one hand, it's, it's, it is very hard to, the, the, real, the real failure of Oxford Wall Street is that we weren't able to adapt. We weren't able to kind of see that that was happening. And then at the same time, um, adopt new decision-making models. Instead, we just became paralyzed. We weren't able to, to make the complex decisions that were necessary. For example, we weren't able as a movement to come up with one demand. We weren't able as a movement to negotiate. We weren't able as a movement to like, articulate um, very clearly, I think, clearly enough for the, for the mainstream. And so these are all kind of things that need to be addressed. But the main problem is figuring out how, to, how do you switch tactics midstream as a movement. You're listening to The Next Debate. I'm Rudyard Griffiths. My guest is activist and author Mika White. Coming up, Mika White explains what trends we should be looking for to understand if we're on the cusp of a new revolutionary moment. Debate. 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 If you're enjoying this podcast, check out my exclusive interview with Mika White in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Log on to www.globeandmail.com for thoughtful commentary and analysis on the issues and debates driving the public conversation. Again, that website, www.globeandmail.com. Final question then, and you know, as you said, you can't describe it, you can't put a finger on where and when and how revolution will happen, but you know, having written this book, having thought about this for a while, what, what are the signs that you would look for? You know, the symptoms that you diagnose in the body politics suggesting it was moving towards a, a revolutionary state? For your question. Now, basically, I think that there's, you know, you, you, it's a little bit of each of the four theories of social change that I get into in my book. So on the one hand, though, I think if you want objective factors, I think mean, there's been some compelling studies that have said that food prices indicate a revolutionary moment. So when food prices break a certain threshold on the uh, UN food index, a revolutionary moment is more likely to occur. And we saw that during the Arab Spring, during Occupy Wall Street. So on the one hand, I would start to look for our food prices increasing or decreasing. And then on the other hand, I think there's a kind of a spiritual 
intuitive, a mood among the people? You know, are the, you know, are people in their guts, are they happy with the society? Are they, um, you know, is there a kind of, is there a quiet, kind of quiet before the storm, which is I think what we experienced in the, right before Arab Spring, you know, these, these, those dictators, that, you know, Mubarak and, 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 and Tunisia, they seem so, in, in, so powerful and invulnerable. Um, but, but then, of course, they were toppled so quickly. So I think on the one hand, it's a kind of a spiritual mood among the people, among the youth. And then on the other hand, I think it's kind of ex- external factors like food prices, how's the economy doing? And then I think there's factors outside of, uh, outside of human control and possibly not knowable for us, you know, that we can get into in a future interview, maybe. Mika White, always uh, provocative, always interesting. This is an important book and an important topic, and uh, congratulations for putting pen to paper and, um, and uh, bringing it to us. Thank you. Thanks for the interview. It was very interesting. Mika White was my guest today on The Next Debate. For more of Mika's take on the future of protest and the potential for revolution, be sure to search out his new book, The End of Protest, a new playbook for revolution. Visit the Next Debate webpage on www.monkdebates.com for the full transcript of this episode and my interview with Mika White in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Thanks for listening to the Next Debate podcast. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, chair of the Monk Debates. Thank you.